Hello, my name is Chris Wallstra. I am a senior electrical engineering student from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is my honor and pleasure to welcome you to the January series today. Please join me in extending a special welcome to four of our 52 remote webcast locations, Pella, Iowa, Wyckoff, New Jersey, Cary, North Carolina, and Berkeley, Michigan. Now, if you will please pray with me. Almighty and most holy God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here today. Grant that we may think deeply about Rachel's words and apply them to our lives, that we may act more justly and live more wholeheartedly as your agents of renewal in this world. In the name of your beloved Son, amen. And now, Pastor Mary Hulst, the chaplain of Calvin College, will introduce our guest. Rachel Denhollander is an attorney, a wife, a mother of four, a follower of Jesus Christ, and a fighter for truth. This Thursday, January 24, will mark one year since she stood in a courtroom not far from here and read a victim impact statement to Dr. Larry Nasser. Rachel was the first to file charges against Dr. Nasser. She was the last of 156 women who stood in that courtroom and told him what he had done to them. If you have not watched or read that statement, you should. Because sexual abuse doesn't just happen in other places. You know someone who is sexually abused. You may know an abuser. As we have seen all too clearly, no university, no church, no family, no institution is exempt from the evil of sexual abuse. When you listen to Rachel's statement, you will hear this refrain, how much is a little girl worth? That's the question we all need to answer in our churches, our schools, our families, our institutions. How much are our children worth? If a child you know came to you and told you that he, that she, had been abused, would you believe him? Would you believe her? Or would you say what these girls heard again and again when they tried to report Dr. Nasser, that such a good man would never do such a thing? How much is a little girl worth? How much is a little boy worth? One year ago, Judge Rosemarie Aquilina called Rachel Denhollander the bravest person to ever be in her courtroom. She's one of the bravest to ever be on this stage. After the presentation, you may greet Rachel in the West Lobby. Calvin College is grateful to Samaritas for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming the courageous Rachel Denhollander.
Thank you. Everyone hear me? Is this on? Are we good? All right. Thank you very much. I have really been looking forward to being here with you all. The January series presents such a unique opportunity to dialogue about the critical issues facing our culture, and my hope is that our time together will facilitate rich discussion. When I first started communicating with staff regarding the forum and addressing the relationship between justice and forgiveness and our Christian call to advocacy, I was very excited. Uh, in part because one of the questions we'll be considering is why as Christians we advocate for justice. And this question is partly responsible for my husband and I finding each other and getting married. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I was maintaining a blog on Zanga. If anyone remembers Zanga way back before Facebook, it kind of dates me. Uh, but we were both on Zanga.com. And I was blogging about worldview issues and advocacy, and a mutual friend showed Jacob my blog and said, hey, I think you, I think you would appreciate this girl's writing. Uh, and he eventually private messaged me after we had posted back and forth, and we hadn't even seen pictures of each other, but he private messaged me and just asked me, what is your motivation for advocacy? Where does this come from? And so we started dialoguing about that, and 900 pages of email later, we decided we should probably meet. <laughs> and when we met, we decided we definitely wanted to date, and now we're married with four kids. Uh, so the topic we'll be covering today has uh, deeply personal implications for me. Uh, but it also has very personal implications for me because of being a survivor of sexual assault by not one, but two predators. And getting a very first-hand look at how Christians and institutions typically respond to abuse. I know what it looks like when it's done well, and I know the damage that results when it's not. And these concepts really extend far beyond just sexual abuse. These concepts are incredibly important for Christians to grasp for three main reasons. First, justice and forgiveness are foundational aspects of the character of Christ. Misrepresenting or misapplying them, therefore, misrepresents the character and nature of our Redeemer. And then Christ, rather than becoming the greatest refuge for the wounded, becomes another example of someone who just minimizes evil. Second, justice and forgiveness are foundational concepts for understanding and communicating the gospel. So if you misunderstand or misapply justice and forgiveness, you are damaging core gospel concepts. And this means that the gospel, instead of being a comfort and a refuge to victims, becomes a means of minimizing the evil and damage that has been done to them. And third, it is misunderstanding justice and forgiveness that will often cause churches and institutions and individuals to respond to abuse in a way that leaves perpetrators in power and counseling survivors in a way that causes incredible damage. So for both very practical and very theological reasons, understanding these concepts is essential for a Christian. And this is particularly true for any of you who are going to be in positions of authority. So what I would like to briefly do this afternoon is really answer three main questions. First, what is justice and forgiveness? How do we define these terms? Second, I wanna look at how these concepts need to be handled within the church and Christian, Christendom and how we need to respond as institutions. And third, I wanna consider our personal response to these theological truths. How do we live out this theology in a way that brings hope to people who have suffered? To first, properly defining justice. You know, we hear this term thrown around all the time. What does it mean? What, it's, what are its defining characteristics? What are the ideas that drive justice? An excellent way to understand what we mean when we use this term is to look at the people that have really pushed for justice in our society. 
one of the greatest cultural leaders uh, that I find very fitting to be quoting today, who pursued justice uh, with just incredible passion, is Martin Luther King Jr. His pursuit of an understanding of justice powerfully changed the world. And his writings on the motivation and ideology for why he did what he did are as sobering as they are inspiring. King once famously wrote that while his pursuit of justice would necessarily involve a use of authority and power, quote, I am not interested in power for power's sake, but I am interested in power that is moral, that is right, and that is good. So the pursuit of justice then we see first is focused on some sort of moral standard, differentiating between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. In other writings, he expounded more on these ideas and he asked, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. This right, this pursuit of what is right, this pursuit of justice, was not a standard that was utilitarian, looking to the expediency of accomplishing something, the end justifies the means, it was not a standard that was based on cultural or social norms. It was not a standard based on human opinion. Rather, this standard of right came from an outside moral source, one not dependent on utility, one not dependent on human opinion. And in the same way, King powerfully taught that we are to ask the question, what is right? We see that justice is comparing something, some event, some action, some idea, against a firm, immovable standard. And this means two very important things. First, very simply, it means the standard exists. And second, if we lose that standard, real justice is no longer possible. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is one of the fundamental ways in which Christians can sing the beauty of Christ and bring hope and light into something that is terribly, terribly dark. In a world that struggles to find moral clarity, in a world that minimizes and downplays or outright excuses sexual abuse, Christians can affirm how evil that abuse is and the existence of a contrary, beautiful standard because we have a standard. This is why C.S. Lewis's quote in Mere Christianity has become so beautiful to me. And I used it in my victim impact statement. Lewis writes, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? And we see Martin Luther King Jr. also explicitly appeals to the standards of God in defining, as a defining characteristic for what we ought to either support or oppose. King wrote, if any earthly institution or custom conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to oppose it. You must never allow the transitory, evanescent demands of a man-made institution to take precedence over the eternal demands of Almighty God. And the reality that this straight line exists 
means two very important things. There is goodness and rightness. This goodness and rightness are not mere matters of human opinion. If this standard was dependent on human perception, if justice and rightness was dependent on our human perception, there would be no firm immovable standard by which we can determine that anything is just or unjust. And from this reality of a firm immovable standard flow several very healing truths that you can use as you respond to abuse in any form. First, if goodness exists, there is hope. There is hope. It is not just darkness. It is not just evil. No matter how oppressive that evil is, if goodness exists, there is always hope. Second, the truth can be spoken about the evil that was done without minimizing, without ignoring, without downplaying. I am not dependent on society's response to my abuse or the response of even those closest to me or the response of 12 jurors. I can name and acknowledge evil because evil really does exist. I can grieve the damage, even if others minimize or excuse what happened. I do not have to prove it. I do not have to carry guilt or blame for it. I can speak the truth and I can grieve it. And being able to speak the truth and grieve the damage in a way that is non-destructive is a fundamental step in healing from any form of injustice. And another vital implication from this truth is not only that the standard exists, but that the moral lawgiver who defines goodness cares about justice and evil. In the Christian faith, right and wrong flow not from some capricious decision, but from the very goodness and holiness of God himself. The reason we feel injustice so keenly is because it is such an aberration from the pure love and holiness of the one who defines the straight line. And because goodness and evil exist in opposites, they exist in contrast to one another. The more one understands good, the better you will understand the depth of evil. And this means that God, as the ultimate standard of holiness, sees and recognizes evil even more fully than we do. The injustice of abuse is even more clear to God than it is to us. As a Christian, you should be the most equipped to condemn sexual abuse and injustice in any form. You should be the most equipped to speak the truth about the vileness and destruction that it wreaks. You are the most equipped to tell people who have suffered that was evil and it was wrong and it matters to me because it matters to God and I grieve it with you. You are the most equipped to grieve with survivors because you possess a standard that lets you know how evil what they suffered really was. And what you need to understand when you do not do this, you are not in agreement with God. You are not in agreement with what he says or with his character. If you treat wickedness as less wicked than God himself treats it, you are not accurately representing Christ. And the survivor who intrinsically feels the depth of devastation is left with a God who isn't trustworthy because he doesn't seem to care very much. He doesn't seem to call something that is terribly evil all that evil at all. The hope of Christ is found in his utter holiness and perfection and beauty. But goodness and evil exist in opposites. Light and dark exist in opposites. 
And when you diminish the one, you have automatically weakened the other. It is not much of a shock to go from a dimly lit room into another dimly lit room. But if you step from a pitch black room into the glaring light of the noonday sun, the overpowering beauty and reality of that light is so much stronger to you than it would have ever been if you hadn't first been in the darkness. If you diminish the darkness, if you act like something isn't as evil as it really is, the beauty and holiness of God that is to exist in utter contrast to that evil becomes less glorious and less beautiful. So the first thing we need to know when we are responding to injustice is that rather than trying to hide or bury the damage, we acknowledge it and we grieve it in all its ugliness, knowing that the depth of the evil points to the beauty of Christ. Sexual abuse is so vile because God is so good. And if you mar these truths, you mar the beauty of hope and Christ. And you mar the foundation from which true forgiveness and healing can spring. And this brings us to a concept that is often misapplied, especially, unfortunately, by Christians. The concept of forgiveness and how it relates to justice. Justice is positively defined as being what is merited or deserved. Meaning, justice for me and for my abuser is that we get what we deserve. And this is where we start to feel that tension between justice and forgiveness. Because if we accept that justice is conformity to an absolute standard of goodness set by God, then justice is a good thing. It is a right thing. And we are commanded as Christians to pursue it. Yet at the same time, the idea of wanting someone to get what they deserve, uh, to get justice, is typically assumed to be antithetical to grace and forgiveness. And forgiving is also held out in Scripture as a Christian virtue. And we are commanded to pursue it as well. So how are both good? Well, to examine that, we need to first properly define forgiveness. Forgiveness, according to a basic standard dictionary definition, which is still useful sometimes, is to give up resentment or claim or requital. Requital being defined as that which you are owed, retaliation. Wanting to do to someone what they did to us. So forgiveness is giving up resentment. It's giving up a claim to retaliation a claim to injure my abuser the way he injured me. And there are two key things about these definitions that will help us discover how they intersect. The first is this. In the definition of forgiveness, notice what is being given up. What is being given up and released is personal to me. My bitterness, my retaliation, my anger, my desire for resentment. But justice is completely outside of me. Justice is not a conformity to my standard or my heart response. Justice is a conformity to an absolute standard that exists outside of how I feel. That does not go away if I release resentment. The standard of right does not disappear if I release my desire to retaliate and my bitterness. So while forgiveness is my personal response to my abuser, Justice is ensuring that an outward standard of rightness is followed and the truth is proclaimed. This means that while justice can certainly be pursued by someone who is bitter, and they may never even see it, justice can also be pursued 
from a heart that has released bitterness and is motivated by nothing but love and desire for the truth. Even more, God has promised not only eternal justice, but he has also provided earthly means for us to pursue it. And this is where the Christian faith portrays the most beautiful and true picture of both justice and forgiveness, the lion and the lamb. See, the Christian faith teaches that not only does God love, but that God is just, that he pours out wrath on evil because he cares, because that evil is more glaring and blatant to him in all his holiness than it is to us. And I absolutely love the way Martin Luther King Jr. explained this. He wrote, the God whom we worship is not a weak and incompetent God. He is able to beat back gigantic waves of opposition and bring low prodigious mountains of evil. The ringing testimony of the Christian faith is that God is able. Very often today, we have the idea that God's punishment or God's wrath is something negative and vengeful. But what we must understand is that the punishment for evil, justice, does not happen because God doesn't love, but because he does. And this again is where there is great opportunity to bring hope and the beauty of Christ to absolute evil and to a world that is desperately hurting. Humans intrinsically know that a judge who behaves as if a heinous crime doesn't matter isn't being a good judge. So I want you to think back to another um, kind of hallmark cultural case we had of sexual abuse, the Brock Turner case. Brock was discovered behind a dumpster sexually assaulting an unconscious woman. Uh, there were multiple eyewitnesses. He was evilly, easily convicted of felony, multiple felony counts of sexual assault. And what did the judge do? He turned around and he sentenced him to six months. Six months, and he only served three. And what did we do societally? Did everybody say, what a good, loving judge? We need more judges like that. What a loving judge. No because we intrinsically knew that the most unloving thing that judge could do was to act like something that was terribly evil wasn't that bad. We know this. Survivors of any type of evil or abuse yearn to know that what happens to them was evil and that it matters to someone. The gospel brings this hope if we properly give the truth about God's justice. And then the gospel even goes one step further because the Christian faith adds to this through an additional measure of incredible love, through God offering to take that justice upon himself in sacrifice for us. The Christian faith teaches that God's holiness and love requires justice because evil is real and it matters. And saying I'm sorry doesn't change that. It doesn't change the damage that was done. Doing other good things does not change the damage that was done. And Christianity recognizes this. But it also teaches that God, in his love and mercy, gave himself to allow the justice that should fall on evildoers to be poured out on him instead. He took the punishment, the justice for evil on himself. And because of this sacrifice, those who repent and turn from their evil and place their faith in Christ will no longer receive what they deserve, not because forgiveness means what they did wasn't that bad, or saying I'm sorry were magic words that erased what they had done, but because 
someone else took their place. In the Christian faith, because evil is real and it matters, justice is always done. Either it falls on the evildoer or it falls on a Christ who willingly stood in their place. But either way, justice is done because evil is real and it matters. Only in the Christian faith do we have a God who unfailingly loves enough to pour out his wrath on evil and bring justice, but also unfailingly loves enough to take that justice upon himself. Only in Christianity can you have forgiveness in a way that evil is never minimized, never mitigated, never excused. Only in Christianity can personal vengeance and resentment be released because there is a God who can be trusted to bring justice. And this marriage of justice and forgiveness through the person and work of Christ is beautifully represented in Revelation 5. And I'm gonna read part of that to you now and there are a couple things I wanna notice about it. John writes, I saw that there was a scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. The scroll was written on the inside and outside and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel announcing in a loud voice, does anybody deserve to open the scroll, to undo its seals? And nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll and look at it. And I burst into tears because it seemed there was nobody who was worthy. One of the elders, however, spoke to me and said, don't cry. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the victory, and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, a lamb. And it was standing there as though it had been slain. The lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, they sang, you are worthy to take the scroll. For you were slaughtered, and with your own blood, you purchased a people for God. Did you catch what John saw? When John weeps and asks who is worthy, he is told the lion has conquered and won the victory. But when he turns around, he sees a lamb. Christ alone is worthy because he is the lion who conquered, pouring out justice and wrath on evil. But he conquered as the lamb, sacrificing himself so that forgiveness can be found. So what do we do with that? Institutionally and individually, what do we do with those beautiful theological truths? Well, ultimately, the application is very simple. First, we teach with balance. As Christian institutions and churches, we need to be incredibly careful to teach both of these truths with balance. Far too often, forgiveness is taught without the corresponding reality of God's justice or presented practically as forgiveness being in place of justice. And the reality is that forgiveness is only possible because of justice. Second, we speak the truth about evil and wrongdoing. Survivors of injustice desperately need to know that what they have been through was wrong and that it matters. So as we counsel or teach or walk alongside those who have suffered, we point to God's justice. 
and holiness, and we let them know what happened to you was evil, and it was wrong, and it matters to me because it matters to God. And even when helping survivors walk towards forgiveness or release bitterness, we never minimize or mitigate the evil that happened to them. We grieve it with them. We acknowledge the depth of that evil because the depth of the evil points to the utter holiness and goodness of God. And lastly, we recognize that the pursuit of justice is a biblical command and calling, and then we act like it. The frank truth is that as Christians, we rarely treat the pursuit of justice as a biblical command and calling, as important to prioritize, as if we're really doing God's work. Despite the fact that that scripture is filled with commands about pursuing justice and speaking up for the defenseless. On a purely anecdotal level, I found it fascinating that when I gave my victim impact statement, I delved deeply into the idea of God's justice and wrath. In fact, I had dedicated a year and a half of my life to pursuing justice at a deeply personal cost. And yet every single Christian outlet that I saw that published or commented on any part of my statement only discussed how godly it was for me to offer forgiveness. Most of them didn't even mention the pursuit of justice despite the fact I was standing there in a courtroom asking the judge to give the maximum sentence. Many outlets even time-stamped my victim impact statement at the part where I started talking about forgiveness and entirely bypassed the discussion on justice. And it's not that forgiveness wasn't important. It was. But forgiveness was based in trust of God's justice and holiness. It is the belief that it was founded in. And it pointed to the character of Christ. It was the driving force behind everything I chose to do. We need to affirm and support and practice the pursuit of godly justice as biblical and right, as something that is found in the character of God, which displays his glory. This even means that those of you who are going to be in leadership positions, administrators, pastors, faculty members, who are likely to receive disclosures of abuse, I plead with you to proactively and compassionately help victims of abuse pursue justice. Remind them that it matters, that they are doing what is right. One of the most powerful things anyone said to me in the entire pursuit was an attorney friend of mine who I consulted. And he said, you know what, Rachel? I don't know what's going to happen. If I were a prosecutor, I would take this case, but I don't know what your prosecutor's going to do. But I do know that justice is found in the heart of God, and it's right to pursue it. And I am praying with you for God's justice to be demonstrated here on earth. And I needed that reminder over and over again. And we need to do this for the abuser as well. Because the only thing that can save that predator is coming face to face with the reality of their own depravity and lead to true repentance. Even for the sake of the abuser, we have to pursue justice rather than mitigating or minimizing the evil that they have done. It is a choice to lovingly speak the truth to them about what they have done in the hopes of bringing them to repentance and salvation because it is the only hope that they have. And corporate repentance and acceptance of the consequences when we do it wrong. If we truly believe these things about justice and forgiveness and grace, then Christian institutions should be the first to repent when we don't do it right, particularly regarding past handling of abuse and injustice. We should be the first 
to speak against teachings or theologies that lead to abuse, to hold leaders accountable, to teach the scriptures accurately, to speak against those who do not accurately represent scripture and the name of Christ. And we should do this out of love for the survivor, out of love for the abuser, and most importantly, out of love for our redeemer, a desire to accurately represent the character of God himself as the only refuge and hope we have. And on a deeply personal level, we do much the same thing, much like corporately, it begins with speaking the truth. So for those of you who have survivors in your life, and all of you do, whether you know it or not, speak the truth about evil. And I really want you to remember this. Survivors are constantly asking the question, am I safe? And they are going to watch how you talk about abusers. And they're gonna watch how you talk about people who speak up or raise allegations of abuse. And that is going to be the barometer for them of how safe they are with you. So when there is something that happens culturally, in politics, in church, in society, where someone speaks up and abuse becomes a national story, be very careful what you say. Because how you talk about that woman or man that has raised an allegation of abuse is sending a very clear message to people in your life who you do not know, who could be crushed by your words because they know if that's how they talk about her or him, that's what they would really think about me too. Survivors will never come forward unless you are a safe place, but they are always watching what you say to know if you're going to be trustworthy. So use that power very carefully, please. Affirm and assist in the pursuit of justice when you are able and remind survivors that it is biblical and right and good. And while each person's individual calling to pursue justice is going to look different, we must bear in mind that this pursuit and speaking out against injustice is both a calling and a command for all Christians. The challenge offered in Proverbs 24, 10 through 12 is incredibly convicting for me. It says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling towards the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know it, does not he who weighs your heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know? There are so many ways in which those around us have been wounded through evil and injustice, and we are commanded to care, to love them, to come to their defense, and saying, behold, I did not know is not an excuse. Saying we did not know doesn't work because the Savior who perceives our hearts knows the truth. And to love this way, to speak out against injustice and in defense of others will cost because most of the time where you're going to be confronted with it is in your own community. It's going to be your church. It's going to be your political party. It's going to be the candidate or the Supreme Court justice or the politician that you wanted. And you're going to have a choice what you prioritize. And whether or not you are going to make your decisions and your speech based on a knowledge and informed understanding of trauma and abuse, or whether you're going to prioritize something else over the truth. It will cost the most when it's in your own community and that's also when it matters the most. 
because a community is the only one that has the ability to stop a predator. It is the people closest that have the power to do something. And more often than not, it is the people closest who get it wrong and who damage the survivors more than they would have ever been damaged and who support the predators in a way that keeps them in power. These truths free us, though, to repent when we get it wrong. They free us against misuse in our midst and for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those who we are to love as he loved. My prayer is that going forward, we will see this command to pursuing justice as something that is biblical and that is right and that is good. It costs, but it is a tremendous privilege to have the words to bring hope. Thank you. I'm Karen Salpi from the English department. I'm fighting a cold, I apologize. And you have allergies, so I do. we may just sneeze Sniffle all the way and through. cough. But um, as always, there are already dozens of excellent questions coming in, and so I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance for all the questions that we won't have time for today, but thank you so much to think about. Um, you may email or tweet questions, and you may write them on paper, hold them up for an usher to bring to me, if you like. Um, let's start with a, a question, a tweet. How are you bringing attention to survivors from marginalized com communities? 94% of indigenous women have experienced sexual assault or coercion. More than 20% of black women were sexually assaulted, while 53% of trans black women have been assaulted. Is that, uh, do you feel like your plate is full enough, or uh, are, is, is that something that you're also aware of and speaking to? Yeah, as I think that's something we need to be incredibly aware of because as much of an uphill battle as survivors face in general, when you come from a marginalized community, it is almost impossible to get justice. Um, there was actually a case that took place simultaneously with my case, and it was incredibly painful for me. It was the same prosecutor uh, who tried my case and who tried this other case. Uh, and in this case, it was a serial rapist truck driver. Uh, who was driving around, and he, had, he was linked to 11 rapes in four different states, but he selected women from marginalized communities. Um, often they had uh, drug use in their background. Uh, and so what happened when these women uh, had the incredible courage to go and report, to go through rape exams at the hospital, he would just say they were prostitutes and I didn't pay them. And he had, he had been connected to 11 rapes in four different states. Um, and I saw justice and these women didn't and one of them ended up dying of an accidental drug overdose uh, after traveling across the country. Uh, and so that reality weighs incredibly heavily on me uh, because I know what it took coming from a place of privilege, a place of support, and a place of being able to have a very good education in law to allow me to do what I did, and it was still an incredibly uphill battle. Um, so my heart breaks for people in those communities. I think there are a lot of things we need to do. We need to talk about that. We need to address that reality. We need to confront cultural myths that, that affect those communities even more than it affects those who come from privilege. There are a lot of statutory changes that I have been working on, uh, changing the statute of limitations, processing rape kits, um, things that will hopefully trickle down to those communities because a lot of the women who don't have a voice and don't have access to the court system in time come from marginalized communities. But we really have to take a fully orbed mm -hmm. approach. One thing is not going to be enough. 
Well, you answered a question about the statute of limitations. Do, do you think that, uh, do you have hope that, that those limits uh, will be lifted and soon. Thank you. Yeah, there are some states doing some really excellent work. New York is getting set to lift theirs right now, and I'm really excited about that. It looks like they're actually going to create a retroactive window for the civil statute of limitations. Uh, and that really is a key provision, creating a retroactive window and lifting the civil statute of limitations, uh, because that's what gives survivors access to the justice system to get these things out so that institutions have some incentive to handle it right. Because right now, what institutions know is if I can bury this for three to five years, when it comes to a head, nobody's going to have access to the court system anymore. So they are incentivized to bury it. Um, and so there is a lot of work that needs to be done on the civil statute of limitations. We are making progress, uh, but there's a lot left to do in that area in particular. Is there ever a time, this comes from a student, is there ever a time when a survivor can heal from sexual assault without coming forward and reporting it? What do you do as a friend if the survivor isn't looking to report? Do you have a responsibility to bring it to light anyway so that the perpetrator learns his lesson? Oh, that is a really difficult question. Um, yes, there is absolutely healing to be found uh, if you don't ever report. Honestly, that's the position that I was in. It was 16 years later, I never thought there would be a chance to report. I knew what I would have to do if it came, but I had to get to the place in my own healing where I realized that my healing was not dependent on whether or not Larry ever saw justice or whether there was an opportunity to report. Um, so I can absolutely say yes, there is incredible healing. Your healing is not dependent on what happens to your abuser. Whether or not you report, um, I think one of the very important things for someone who's walking along a survivor to understand is that what was taken from that survivor was their voice and their choice. And you can't take that from them too. You cannot force or pressure someone to report. I think the best thing to do in that situation is you grieve with them, you speak truth to them, you walk alongside them, and then you get to a point where you say, this really matters, can I help you report? Can we work towards this? And you walk that with them, but you do it in a way that is absolutely respectful of their voice and their choice. Because if you take that away from them again, you are doing the same thing that their abuser did, in a sense. So it has to be done very, very carefully, and that's a very personal decision. And you've said a number of times that one of the most important messages you can give to a survivor is, this is not your fault. Yes. Why is it uh, that so many survivors feel this guilt that, um, that they shouldn't, mm -hmm. because it isn't? Oh, I think there are a lot of dynamics to that. Um, you know, the cultural messages that survivors hear are incredibly devastating. When someone speaks up, the first questions are, what were you wearing? Why didn't you fight back? How could you not know? Uh, you know, it, I don't think it's possible because, and then they have lists of reasons why, why the perpetrator couldn't really be a perpetrator. Uh, and so the message that survivors hear over and over again is, if you'd done it differently, this wouldn't have happened. Your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault your fault for not seeing it, your fault for not stopping it, your fault for not reporting it, it's your fault. And so how we communicate has an incredible impact. Um, I think a lot of that has to do even internally with what's been damaged. Your ability to trust your own judgment and your own instincts and your own voice has been completely eradicated because those concepts of trust uh, were just, they weren't only turned on their head, they were weaponized against you. Uh, and so there is incredible guilt that naturally comes um, you know, sexual violation is an, is an intensely private thing. Sexuality was never meant to be put on display. Uh, you know, it was meant to be uh, intensely private. It's sacred. It's created by God. It's a gift, but it's sacred. Um, and so there's a lot of natural shame that comes with that because your body was never supposed to be on display. 
and when you choose to report, that's what happens. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of factors, and it's important as you're walking alongside a survivor to be aware of the lies that they are hearing in their head so that you can speak the truth to them over and over again, because they may not be in a position of being able to hold on to the truth themselves. They need somebody outside speaking that to them. I appreciate it, too. I hadn't thought about it much before this morning in class um, that my students especially were aware of the difference between using the word victim and using the word survivor. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate uh, the empowerment of using the word survivor, because yeah. in fact, that's what they are. Uh, it comes from a parent. I have an eight-year-old daughter who's competing with USAG as a, as a gymnast. I worry about the intense nature of the sport and the extensive hours it requires at such a young age, but she loves it. In light of all your different experiences, I'm wondering if you think USAG is now a safe place for young gymnasts to be. Oh boy. Non-controversial <laughs> issue right now. Um, the very short answer to USAG is I think they need to be decertified. I do not think they're a safe place. Um, they do not understand what's gone wrong. They do not understand what abusive coaching tactics look like. USAG as an organization cannot be trusted. They need to go. Whether or not an individual gym can be trusted, I think, is somewhat of a different story because gyms have a lot of autonomy. I'll be honest, we're wrestling through that right now because my four-year-old asks me every day to start gymnastics. I want to be a gymnast mommy who goes wound and wound the balls like this. <laughs> uh, so we're really wrestling through that right now. Do I even start her down that road? Um, you know, and I do have very mixed feelings about that. You know, I didn't start gymnastics till I was almost 12. So I was much later, uh, and that was in, to an extent a saving grace. Um, and I had an incredibly healthy gym, and I had parents who were very aware of the potential for abusive dynamics. Uh, and so my experience as a gymnast was wonderful. I loved it. I loved the sport. And so there's part of me that wants my daughter to experience what I experienced, because it's fun. It is a fun sport, and I took incredible life lessons from it. So my, my counsel or recommendation to a parent would be to have these discussions very openly with your daughter. If this is something she loves and you as a family feel it's healthy for your family to pursue it, talk to your daughter about the risks. Talk to her about her identity. Her identity is not a gymnast. Her identity is a child in Christ and where her value lies and why we do sports. You know, and talk to her about what an abusive coaching dynamic looks like. It's not okay to be treated this way. You know, one of the things that my mom said to me when we started, because she was aware of some of these dynamics, um, is my parents said, you know, these are risks in the sport. If it ever looks to me like you're developing an eating disorder, or there is an abusive coaching environment, or I see you becoming so obsessed with the sport that you're losing your identity and who you are, you're going to be yanked out of there so fast you won't know what hit you. <laughs> yeah, and then my mom followed up with it. She said, you know what, and I know that's going to be hard for you, and I know it might make you angry but I am willing to risk your anger to save your soul. And so I knew going into the sport that if these unhealthy characteristics were there, we were going to be somewhere else. And that my mom knew I wasn't going to like it, and she was going to do it anyway, because she cared that much about me. And so anytime you have a child who is really into anything that could become their identity or put them in a position of, you know, of abuse, any sport, you got to have those conversations and you got to have them over and over again. And if there's something happening in the gym with the way the coach is coaching, uh, that needs to be confronted. And your daughter needs to know it's not okay. It's not okay for the coach to talk to you like that. It's not okay for this to be happening. Um, and that you are worth more than medals. This isn't what it's about. Have those discussions and have them often. It occurs to me that um, we're, we're hearing lots and lots of stories over the past year about uh, sexual abuse <clears throat> in the entertainment industry. And 
there, there's something in common in these two fields where if your self-worth is tied up in success in this field, you might be less inclined to risk ruining that by exposing your abuser. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I, so I, I like your parents' approach. You can tell them I said so. I will. <laughs> how do you feel, this comes from a student, how do you feel about girls falsely accusing men of sexual assault and how is that affecting real victims? Mm -hmm. What's the degree to which this happens? Yeah, I think, I think again, there are a couple things to that. Um, the first thing is, yeah, it happens. It does happen. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think we need to deal with that. Uh, we need to understand the concern that is behind that question because it's a real and valid and legitimate concern. Uh, that being said, it does not happen very often. Best studies estimate that between two and 8% of accusations are false. Uh, and most of the time, those are in child custody type cases where a parent is uh, trying to turn a child one way to get custody to the child. Conversely, experts estimate that out of every thousand rapes committed, only 300 get reported to the police. Out of those 300 reported to the police, only seven get charged, only six lead to jail time. So for every 1,000 victims out there, only six of them are seeing justice, but 92 to 98% of them are telling the truth. Okay, so if we're going to be concerned about where that balance falls, we need to understand that there is far more risk of never stopping an abuser then there is an unjust accusation, much less an accusation that leads to charges, much less an accusation that leads to jail time. The Duke Lacrosse rape case is an excellent example of this. Making that false accusation was wrong, and we need to say so because it hurts everybody when false accusations are made, and that needs to be condemned. But what actually happened? What actually happened was that that team has now become a cultural icon for standing up against false accusations, and the prosecutor who levied the charges actually served jail time for it. That prosecutor who brought the false charges served more jail time than 993 rapists are ever going to serve. That's the sobering reality. Your son is astronomically more likely to be sexually abused and never see justice than he is to ever be the victim of a false accusation because your son is, is almost 25%, falls in that range of almost 25% of boys are abused. And experts are estimating that that's probably significantly under, underestimated now. So your son has a very high risk of suffering sexual abuse and never seeing justice. He's got a very small risk of being falsely accused. So we need to speak the truth about those false accusations. They're wrong. They harm everybody. But we also need to understand where the risk actually falls. Can you talk as a parent about how you create an environment in which your children would feel safe in telling you about abusive situations? Yeah, um, as a parent, that is actually one of the most frightening things to me because I look back on my childhood and there is not anything I would ask my parents to do differently. Not a thing. And you did tell your mother, but I, not for a while. Not for a while. Um, the first time I was abused, I was around seven or eight, uh, seven. Um, and I didn't tell until I was uh, about 12 years old. So it was quite a while before I told. Um, and I knew this person frightened me. I knew he made me feel uncomfortable. I knew there was something very wrong, but I was so afraid of verbalizing that, of putting words to it, that I couldn't ask for help. Uh, and really the same thing happened with Larry. There came a point in time where I knew Larry had abused me, but I had no idea what to do with it. Uh, but there's nothing I would ask my parents to do differently. The communication was always open. I was educated very well on abuse and abusive dynamics. I was never afraid of my parents. I knew they would believe me. I knew they would support me. I had none of that, and I still couldn't tell. 
Um, so I think one thing you have to grapple with as a parent is you can do everything right and it still happens. And that's a really hard reality. That being said, I think there are some things you can do very well that will open the door for your child to come to you and provide an environment that will really minimize the damage that was done. Having open communication is a big part of that. Um, knowing that your parents are going to support you and are going to listen to what you're saying. Uh, presenting a healthy view of sexuality, a healthy view of male-female relationships is huge. Uh, some of the things we do with our kids, because they're quite young, our, their uh, son is seven and our daughters are four, three, and five months. Um, so there are, we're really focused on educating them on concepts right now. Uh, concepts of bodily autonomy, concepts of consent, and concepts of privacy. Uh, and so one rule we have in our house is you're not allowed to touch without consent, not even good touches. You don't tickle, you don't hug, you don't know anything and say unless you ask first. And my daughters and my son know that if they're touched without consent, that mommy will come and, they will, and she will defend them or daddy will come and defend them. There are consequences for touching without permission. Uh, in addition to that, we go overboard in respecting our children's bodily privacy. Uh, so one thing that we do when our, you know, our kids are really little and we have to help them in the bathroom still, my son went through a phase where he was very uncomfortable with anybody except mommy and daddy helping him in the bathroom. And so I verbalized to him, that's okay. Your pri we respect your privacy. You never have to say yes. So mommy and daddy are not gonna go on a date tonight so that we can be here to help you in the bathroom. That's how seriously we took respecting our son's voice and our son's privacy. And we verbalized that to him over and over and over again so that he knows it's important to me and it should be respected. And if it's not respected, there's a problem. Uh, we talk about their bodies very positively. So when we discuss private areas, we have those discussions. They're important to have. Kids need to know uh, that these areas are private, but we, we say they're extra special. They're not, they're not they're private not dirty. because we're ashamed of them. They're exactly. private because... Yep. They're special. Yeah, and we're even careful with how we phrase the modesty discussion because I don't want my daughters to walk away with the idea of you're supposed to protect your body and if something happens, it's because you didn't protect it. Uh, because that's a very damaging message that a lot of girls pick up on. And so what we say is, God made these parts of your body extra special and we treat them with extra special respect. And I talked to my son about helping his sisters protect and respect their bodies for the special things that God made. And we talk about it very positively. And when you have those concepts in place, as their knowledge of sexuality grows, they can start applying those concepts to more and more detailed understanding of sexuality. We began this series a few weeks ago uh, talking about the prison initiative where prisoners' life uh, sentence, prisoners are getting an education and in being rehabilitated and participating fully in um, that was a, a hopeful note. Do you see potential for Larry Nassar to be rehabilitated? I don't. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, now, I want to preface this with saying we have a lot of work to do in our justice system with, uh, with rehabilitation, with how prisoners are treated, um, with some of the racial disparities in sentencing. We have a lot of work to do. That being said, there are some things that we need to understand about pedophiles in particular. A true pedophile almost never changes. They will always struggle, statistically, they will always struggle the rest of their life with a sexual attraction to children. That is a reality we have to acknowledge and we have to grapple with. Because when we fail to do that, it leaves the predator in a position where if he is freed from prison, he is constantly subjected to temptation and it puts children in a very dangerous position. Uh, someone like Larry in particular, because he is so hardened, um, I don't, I don't see outside of an absolute miracle of God that he will ever change. Because of what he has done to this point, I do think a life sentence is just, and I think it is necessary 
to protect society from him. Now, should we give him every opportunity to repent? Yes. Should we treat him as a human being made in God's image? Yes. You know, I, I do not agree with a lot of the um, wishing that he experiences what we experienced in prison. Evil is never okay, even when it's perpetrated on somebody else who's evil. Um, and so I think we need to really take a fully orbed perspective we need to, we, need a, we have a lot of work we need to do in our justice system, but we also need to grapple with the reality, uh, particularly of sexual predators who are true pedophiles, because failing to do so harms everyone, including the pedophile. You, there, we have another six hours worth of questions coming in, but, <laughs> but I'd appreciate it if you would um, run us through, in your impact statement, you both forgave Larry Nassar and wished for him the experience of brokenness. Can mm -hmm. you sort of recap that for us. I'd like to. Yeah, that. Um, that was something that I really felt was important to communicate to Larry. Um, you know, I thought a lot about what do I, do I even need to say anything to him, you know, because I really wasn't sure I did. Um, but at the very first preliminary hearing, he came in holding his Bible. And he was, he was using his Bible, he was using religion uh, to try to get leniency, uh, to try to convince himself that he was okay. Um, there were different time periods where he would say he was very sorry, um, but the brokenness wasn't there. The actual repentance wasn't there. And what I know is that until that actual repentance is there, Larry can't be saved. Yeah, and I, I want that for him. I genuinely want that for him. And so the only hope that he has is to truly feel the weight of what he has done. That's the only hope that all of us have is to come face to face with our own sin and our own brokenness and realize that we too need a savior. We need to repent and we need a savior. And I wish that for Larry because that is the only hope that he has. Until he is able to acknowledge and admit what he has done, he can never ask for true forgiveness and he can never repent. I want, we should have a slide to post up here um, with information about how to report uh, or where to find information and support. There we go. Um, I want to thank our underwriter, Samaritas, for today's presentation. I want to thank Rachel for being with us this afternoon. I thank all of you. Stay warm. We'll see you one more day tomorrow. Thank you very much.